but it is good to be reminded that no matter how overwhelming our circumstances may be, no matter how great, no matter how troubling or frightening they may seem, we can stand firm knowing that God's throne is firmly established in the heavens. There is none above him, none before him, and all of time is in his hands. So you are not a statistic. He knows your name. Remember that. He knows your name. Our Savior purchased you with his own blood. His love is unchanging. His power undiminished. And his promises are sure. Friends, this world is our Father's world. And he is sovereign over everything that happens in it. God is steering human history towards its appointed end. When all the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed and his eternal kingdom will be established in glory. It is this hope that ought to encourage our faithful endurance as Christians. This is the message of the book of Daniel. And this morning as we return to our sermon series in Daniel, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 28. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now give us understanding by the power of your spirit. Teach us your truths and sanctify your people. Cause our hearts to rejoice in hope because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And strengthen our faith so that we may stand firm in the face of every trial. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How would you like to travel through time? You know, people have always been fascinated with the idea of time travel. From ancient myths to Jewish traditions to science fiction novels and even movies, the idea that you can revisit the past or travel to the future has always been fascinating and entertaining to many. So think about Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol, written in 1843, where the protagonist, Ebenezer Scrooge, is transported in a vision to Christmas's past and future. Or think, think of A.G. Wells and his book, The Time Machine. Think of those Back to the Future movies, or The Men in Black, Terminator, or The Planet of the Apes. Now, even though people know that all of this is just make-believe, they're still willing to spend good money on these books and movies because there's something appealing about knowing the future. Now, movie makers know this about their audience. And so they come to you with this question, what would it be like to know the future? To be prepared in the now for what is to come. But movies and sci-fi novels are nothing but the imaginations of men. They're fantasy and nothing more. But what if I told you that there was a better way a sure way of knowing the future, of knowing where human history is heading so that we can be spiritually prepared for what is to come. You see, the Bible tells us how human history will end because the Bible is the word of God who is the Lord of history. He alone knows the future because he decrees the future. He ordains it and therefore his word is trustworthy. Now Daniel chapter 7 tells us about what Daniel saw in a vision about the future before the events of Daniel 5 and Daniel 6. So we're about to find out what Daniel saw about the future that made him so bold before the wicked Belshazzar and unwavering in his faith before ferocious lions. Now, when we think about Daniel, we often think of him as the man of steel. You know, nothing phases Daniel. He is unwavering, unshakable. But in this passage, Daniel sees things that make him anxious, frightened, 
we can relate to Daniel in this passage. Now just to understand where we are in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 is where the Aramaic section of Daniel ends. Chapters 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew. So the first six chapters are historical narrative. They are true stories. They are factual accounts with predictive prophecy. But chapters 7 to 12 are visions. They are true. They are the word of God, but they are visions. But the Hebrew section doesn't start from chapter 7, even though chapter 7 is a vision. No, it starts from chapter 8. And that tells you something. This is the writer's way of giving us an interpretive key. If chapter 7 is in Aramaic, then it tells us that it's connected to, to the first six chapters in some way, and especially to chapter 6. So if you compare this chapter, chapter 7 with chapter 6, you will find that just as Daniel was face to face with beasts, with lions in chapter 6, here he sees beasts in a vision. In chapter 6, Darius passes his royal judgment over Daniel. But in this chapter, God is the royal judge. And his judgment is the only judgment that matters. In chapter 6, we see Daniel being taken up out of the den alive. He is vindicated because of his trust in the Lord. And here we will see that God's people will be vindicated because of their trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. But that's not the only connection. You see, chapter 7 is really looking at chapter 2 in a different way. It conveys the same truths, but from a different perspective. Now, if you look at that insert in your bulletin, this insert, look at figure 1. It not only tells you how chapters 2 and 7 are essentially the same thing, but it also shows you how each vision builds upon the other. Each is adding more information to the other. So chapters 2 and 7 give us the basic idea of the four kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar, don't you? In chapter 2, he had a dream of a great image. This head of image was made of gold. We learned that it represented Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom Babylon. The chest and the arms of the image were made of silver, representing the Medo-Persian kingdom. Its middle and thighs were of bronze, representing the Greeks. Its legs were made of iron and its feet partly of clay, partly of iron. This represents Rome. And then as Nebuchadnezzar looked on, he saw a stone that was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image and broke it to pieces. And Daniel prophesied that it was the Lord who sets up kingdoms and kings. The times and seasons are in his hands. The Lord does according to all that he pleases and no one can stay his hand. A day is coming, said Daniel, when the Lord will destroy all the kingdoms of the world and he will set up an everlasting kingdom and he's going to do it through his Messiah. That stone that will break all the other kingdoms and become a mountain and fill the earth. These truths about the coming kingdom of God were given to the people of Israel to sustain them during exile. If you look closely at figure 1, you will see that chapters 8 to 12 are essentially sort of blow-ups up, blow of parts of the big picture. They, they're adding more information to certain parts. So chapter 8 expands on the second and third kingdom, while chapters 10 to 12 expands on the third and fourth kingdom. You know, think of, uh, think of Neville and Katrine's wedding. You know, just as we had different cameras at different angles, you know, all focused on the same thing. You know, that's what these visions do. They give us different views of different portions of chapters 2 and 7. You'll also see these things compared in figure 2. So look down at figure 2 and you can use that in your own personal reading and study of Daniel. Now friends, these visions in chapters 7 to 12 should not be interpreted like you interpret historical narrative. So when you read a letter, you must pay attention to phrases and clauses and the tight logical connection between the arguments. When you read poetry, well, different rules of interpretation apply. So if you read a line that says, her lips dripped of sweet honey, it doesn't mean that she was puking out some sugary liquid. No, it means that her words were kind and sweet. It's a metaphor. 
different rules of interpretation apply. So the genre, the type of literature, the genre of chapters 7 to 12 is apocalyptic literature. This term derives from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means unveiling. God reveals, he unveils to Daniel mysteries about the future using highly symbolic visions. And so these visions are full of colorful, bizarre, scary, and even head-scratching metaphors that are not to be interpreted literally. Now, this might be strange for us because apocalyptic literature is not common in our day. But biblical apocalyptic literature was written to encourage believers who were being despised by the world, who were being marginalized, who were suffering. It was meant to communicate to them in shocking and soul-stirring ways that God would indeed come for them, just as he had promised. He will avenge his people. He will right every wrong. He will destroy evildoers and he will set up an everlasting kingdom for the joy of his people. So keep these things in mind as we read Daniel chapter 7. You will have to use your imagination. But the text will keep you from going astray. So, so think of these visions as great cinematic moments with lots of special effects. You know, some of these scenes are horrifying and overwhelming, while some of them will want to make you stand up and cheer. And that's the point. See, God wants us to see things from his perspective. It's hard to understand. It's hard to see things from God's perspective. And so God sort of dumbs it down for us in ways that we can understand it. Gives us little visions to excite us about the future, to comfort us. And so God reveals three truths to us in this vision. Number one, he reveals to us the real face of human kingdoms. The real face of human kingdoms. Number two, he reminds us of the indestructible kingdom of Christ. The indestructible kingdom of Christ. And then finally, number three, he announces the hope and triumph of the saints. The hope and triumph of the saints. But first, let's consider the real face of human kingdoms. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So, if this was a movie, think of this as a flashback. In chapters 5 and 6, we saw that Belshazzar was killed. And just as God had shown Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, the Medo-Persians had come to power. And now the, the scene shifts. The camera turns, going back to the first year of Belshazzar's reign. We're told Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in, in his bed. So this is what he saw in his mind. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, you remember how dreams work, don't you? Usually we, we can't remember our dreams when we get up. But this vision that Daniel is having is divine prophecy in the form of a vision. It's inspired by the Spirit of God. And so Daniel is able to remember it. And the inspired narrator tells us that he wrote it down. Look at verses 2 to 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four winds means that they are coming from all four points of the compass. Meaning they're coming from everywhere. In our day, we often say things like, the delegates came from the four corners of the globe. Well, that's dumb. Globes don't have corners. We don't interpret it literally. But, but we get the point. You understand what's being said. We're, we're being given a picture of all creation. There's something happening on a worldwide scale. The winds are stirring up the great sea. Think of what happened at creation. Genesis 1, when God's Spirit blew over the waters... Out of that stirring came order and beauty. But here something else happens. You see, in the scriptures, the sea is a symbol of chaos and rebellion and disorder. This is a picture of the world in its unregenerate, godless and wicked state. And here's what comes out of it. Here's what emerges from it. Verse 3. 
And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now I know for many of you who are reading apocalyptic literature for the first time, this can seem confusing. The sea is not really the sea. You know, in, in Daniel's day, if you had said the great sea, they would have thought of the Mediterranean Sea. But that's not the way to read this passage. You know, we shouldn't be standing at the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea hoping that Godzilla is going to come up. That's not the, the way you read this scripture. Look at verse 17 to 18. When the interpretation of this vision is given to Daniel, this is what we read. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. I, f I feel like sitting down. Like that's the point of this passage. That's it. That's a great summary of this passage. You know, in verse 2, where are the beasts coming up out of? The sea. In verse 17, where are they coming up out of? The earth. That's not a problem. Because this is all highly symbolic imagery. We're not supposed to press into all the peripheral details of the vision. But to get the main point of the symbolism. Get the main point of all this bizarre imagery. But since this is telling us the, the, the prophecy of chapter 2 in a vision form, we now know, according to verse 17, that these beasts are kings. Remember, in the book of Daniel, we are taught that those who are hostile towards God and His people are like beasts, earthly kings and kingdoms. Those two things go together. You don't separate them, kings and kingdoms. They are beastly and they rage against Christ and His saints. And that's what we see here. Human governments in this age are not sanitized. They're not neutral. There are powers, there are rulers and authorities that work behind the scenes. This is what makes them beastly. They serve the great beast, that dragon, Satan himself. You know, all we can see when we look at politicians are expensive suits and fine-looking kanduras. But God peels back the curtains, as it were, and shows us their true colors. He shows us their true faces in apocalyptic vision. I don't know if you've seen the movie Men in Black. If you've, if you've seen that movie, raise your hand. Okay, so I won't lose you. If you've seen that movie, the main plot of the story is that there are aliens living among us. You know, they look like ordinary people. They have families, they have regular jobs. But there's a special division in the government that keeps a track of these aliens. And they know who they are. And whenever these men encounter these aliens, they reveal their true faces. And they look hideous. You know, they've got tentacles and many eyes and claws. They look beastly. And that's what God wants us to see here. Human governments and their rulers are vile, depraved beasts who rage against God and His Word and His people. This is what Daniel saw. Look at verses 4 to 6. The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now, who is this king and what is this kingdom? Remember, this is a retelling of chapter 2. In the scriptures, in Jeremiah 4, 7 and Ezekiel 17, verse 3, King Nebuchadnezzar is described as a lion and as an eagle. So this is Babylon, the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was feared through the land just as the lion is feared in the jungle. His conquests and reign were far-reaching. This is what the eagle's wings represent. Far-reaching. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation? God plucked away his kingdom. And then he was restored, wasn't he? And that's what we see in the vision. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. His reason was restored, we read in chapter 2. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. See, these beasts are different from each other. They're all evil, but they have different shades of evil. This one's like a bear. It was raised up on one side. So this creature is, is deformed. It's lopsided. And that's because this is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. 
And in that kingdom, there was an imbalance of power with the Persians being more powerful. You see this again in chapter 8. Daniel sees a ram with two horns. One of those horns is higher than the other. Same thing, different visual effect. Right? Daniel 8.20 tells us that the two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. Of the one ram, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Now this bear... Look at the text. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Some of you are thinking, yum, ribs. It's not that kind of ribs. Right? This is not Texas Roadhouse ribs. This bear has killed people and kings. It's still chewing. It was told, arise, devour much flesh. This is a cruel and monstrous creature and it does great harm. You know, history bears testimony to the savage lust of the Medo-Persians in building their empire. Now remember, Daniel lived through these first two kingdoms. Can you imagine what that would have been like? To see this kind of savagery all around him? Verse 6. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. So here's a beast. That's really fast. It's a leopard. And it covers a lot of territory because it has wings. This represents the kingdom of Greece. Led by Alexander the Great, he was swift in his conquest. And within a short period of time of 10 years, that's all. It took him 10 years. At the age of 32, he had conquered the entire Medo-Persian empire up to the borders of India. The text says the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After Alexander died at a young age, his kingdom divided. Now friends, here are two things I want you to observe in this passage. About these kings and, and kingdoms that are hostile to God. About these animal-like power blocks. Firstly, notice that the beasts are hybrid. Did you notice that? You know, one looks like a lion but has eagle's wings. The other looks like a bear but it's quite deformed. The other's a, a leopard but it has wings of a bird. What does this bizarre imagery teach us? Well, again, go back to Genesis. Remember how God made all creatures in the beginning? Each according to its kind. But what do we see here? They are not according to their kind. No, they are mutants. They are fiendish monsters. Degenerate deformed, unclean. You know, this communicates that these kings and kingdoms are unholy and hostile towards gods, towards God. They're scoffers. They're comfortable in their wickedness, just like Belshazzar was. Now, typically, you can respond to this in one of two ways. One of two ways. One, you may be the kind of person who understands all of this. After all, you only have to survey the last hundred years of human history to see how barbaric human rulers and governments can be. Think of the killing fields in Cambodia, Hitler's Holocaust, the genocide in Rwanda, Stalin's killings in the Soviet Union, or Mao's terror famine that led to the deaths of 45 million people in China, or the treatment of Christians in North Korea. Or think about how much control governments exercised around the world just in the last two years. You know, it's easy to see the beastliness of governments when they violently persecute or oppose people, especially God's people. After all, we know that the Lord has put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The conflict between God's people and human kingdoms is nothing but an expression of a more sinister conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the throne of God. Jesus said, if the world hated him, it will hate us as well. And if we are going to stand against the schemes of the devil, Paul tells us that we must see and understand with the eyes of faith that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are dark demonic forces at play here and the Lord wants us to see the horror of this reality. Don't be naive. 
So you might be someone who, who gets this. Or, here's the other way you could respond. You might respond like this. You might be someone who says, you know, I'm having difficulty trying to accept that all human kings and kingdoms are beastly. I don't know, but my government is fairly nice. You know, I, I know that they are a pain in some areas, but overall I enjoy my freedoms. Well, yes, they restrict freedom of speech and they will silence those who critique the government. But, and sometimes my government makes Christian obedience hard. They pass unjust laws and policies. Some of them are bad. But I don't know if I want to call them beastly. I mean, no one's chasing me with a machete. Can they be all that bad? Well, friend, if that's you, then I want to say to you that perhaps you haven't truly understood how wicked, how sinister, how evil, and how depraved the unregenerate heart is towards a holy and righteous God. Do you remember the words that our Savior had for those morally upright, socially respectable Pharisees? He called them a brood of vipers. Here's the second thing I want you to note about these kings and kingdoms that are hostile to God. You see, despite how terrifying these beasts are, did you notice that they do not possess autonomy? Look at all those passive verbs in the text. Verse 4, the lion's wings are plucked off. It was lifted up. It was made to stand. A mind was given to it. Verse 5, the bear is told, devour much flesh. Verse 6, dominion was given to the leopard. These creatures are like dogs on a leash. You see, they can only do what God permits them to do. What God ordains for them to do. Friends, remember that God is the one who raises up kings and kingdoms. He is the one who gives authority and takes it away. Beloved, this would have given the Israelites in exile great comfort and endurance. And it should give us today great comfort and endurance in the midst of any kind of opposition. You know, at our Tuesday night church history classes, we've been learning about this, haven't we? You know, nothing takes God by surprise. He is in complete control of the most ruthless dictator and the most benevolent unregenerate king. Both of whom will share the same fate apart from the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. See, those who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, they rage against Him. That hostility manifests itself in violent persecution. Sometimes. But it also masquerades as niceness, as tolerance, as indifference. Friends, the road to hell doesn't always take you through dark alleys. Most often people get there cruising on clean and scenic highways. Now, if those first three beasts were not bad enough, Daniel now suddenly finds himself looking at an R-rated horror movie scene. Look at verses 7 to 8. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. This beast is monstrous. But what horrifies Daniel is its savage, uncontrolled cruelty. It had great iron teeth. No one can escape its jaws. It devoured and broke in pieces. And then note this. And stamped what was left with its feet. Just unspeakable cruelty. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. Daniel says that this creature was an abomination. It was a freak of nature. A hideous mutation. Again, Keep in mind how symbols work. The more hideous the beasts, the more depraved and hostile the kingdoms. This beast represents the Roman Empire and its ruthless expansion. You know, Rome ruled with an iron fist, often using public crucifixions to spread their reign of terror. And Daniel reports, look at the text, and it had ten horns. See, horns are symbols of power. They're symbols of rule and authority, and they 
and they often refer to kings. So how many horns do animals have, typically? Two. Here we see ten. Five times two. So this is a, a symbol of extraordinary power granted to this beast. Verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. So this ruler at first looks insignificant. But then look what happens. Before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. They are overcome by this little horn. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So this is an individual. This horn has eyes like that of, that of a man. He sees. He's intelligent like man. But he's also boastful, isn't he? This is a person who's arrogant and full of self-glory. He has a mouth speaking great things. Now, if this was a movie, this would be a tense moment, wouldn't it? Like, what's going to happen? This beast is horrifying. You see this little horn. The tension rises. It's as though at any point a bomb could go off and all hope would be lost. And at that moment, all of a sudden, dramatically, the scene shifts. The camera moves. It moves from earth to heaven. And that brings us to our second point. In this vision, we are reminded of the indestructible kingdom of Christ. Look at verses 9 to 10. As I looked, thrones were placed. So this is a heavenly scene. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. See, God is described in this vision as the Ancient of Days. That doesn't mean that he's old or wobbly or outdated. No, it means that he is eternal, all-wise and all-powerful. Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And since a holy God cannot be seen with sinful eyes, God is spirit, we know that. And so we're given a depiction. God is described in anthropomorphic terms, in human terms. He sits, he has hair, he has clothing. Daniel sees God seated on his throne. While these beasts are raging and everything seems to be working against the Lord's people, it's as though God is saying to Daniel, Daniel, set your mind on things above. See, that is a picture of perfect rule and control. But a throne, dear friends, is also a picture of judgment. God, the royal judge, has taken his seat his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. This represents God's holiness and righteousness. His judgments are right and true. You know, this is the way Jesus' clothes were described at his trans transfiguration. Clothing as white as snow. Or take Revelation 1.14 where his hair is described as white like wool. And look at the throne. His throne was fiery flames. His throne is not covered with flames. It was fiery flame. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that is awesome. His throne was fiery flames. He has a throne of fire, a consuming fire of judgment. Its wheels were burning fire. The throne has wheels. It's a throne chariot. You know, if his throne has wheels, what does that tell you? It's not limited to one place. God is not bound to one place. His judgments extend everywhere. No one can escape His judgment. Understand the visual effects. Notice what's being communicated. Verse 10. A stream of fire issued and, and came out from before Him. Psalm 50 verse 3 says, Before God is a devouring fire, it flows from His throne. All His judgments come from Him personally. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. This describes the, the heavenly beings, angels who do God's bidding. No balls are dropped in heaven. God's will will be done. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So this is a picture of a divine court in session. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So Daniel's looking at the scene where God is on his throne and yet he's, he's hearing this arrogant little horn saying things that he should not be saying. And then he sees this. As I looked, the beast was killed 
and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, you remember the first three. Their dominion was taken away. God took away their rule. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. A season and a time means for a little while. But this ruler, this little horn, this beast, what does he do? He destroys. He kills. He casts him into the fire. Notice, that's way that, notice the way that it's communicated to us. God sits. The beast dies. It's pretty anticlimactic, isn't it? God hasn't broken a sweat. He doesn't have to get up from the throne. He doesn't have to roll up his sleeves. He sits and it's done. He renders his judgment and it was game over. Beloved, this is our God. This is our God. Behold your God. No matter how chaotic your life may be, no, ma no matter how painful, how hard, how crushing your trials may be, you are not alone. For the Christian, no situation is ultimately hopeless. You may not have solutions to your problem, but you are not hopeless. This is your God. You are not alone. Our Heavenly Father is on His throne. Brothers and sisters, when we come together in corporate worship, Hebrews 12 tells us that we come to God, the judge of all. We come to innumerable angels. We come to Jesus, our mediator, our high priest, our coming king. All who are hostile and opposed to God and his purposes and his people may think they have the upper hand. But he who sits in heaven laughs at them. He holds them in derision. He will judge them. So trust in your heavenly father who has numbered the very hairs of your head. Not one of them will fall without his express command. Oh brothers, a day is coming when God will vindicate his people. You know, remember that when you are denied justice in this age. When you're unfairly treated. God will come through for you. He will vindicate His people. He will inflict vengeance on those who afflict His people and on those who reject His reign. We see here that the beast is killed. But notice who gets the credit for this. Look at verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now when we see the phrase, like a son of man, it usually means that this person is human. But notice his vehicle of transport. He comes riding on the clouds of heaven. That's significant. Why? Because throughout the Old Testament, only Yahweh, only the Lord is the cloud rider. Psalm 104 verse 3, he makes the clouds his chariot. So this one who is human is also what? Divine. Now this is happening in heaven. Remember, he is coming to the ancient of days and the text says he was presented before him. This is a, a coronation scene. He is being crowned for his victory. Daniel is seeing someone who is human yet divine and he dares step forward into the very throne room of God before his holy presence Unlike these human rulers who are portrayed as beasts, this one rides in the clouds. He's truly human. He is all that God created mankind to be. And in him there is no blemish, no beastliness. He's altogether lovely and glorious. Friends, what we are seeing here is a picture of Jesus' ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection. Jesus is the Son of Man. This is the way Jesus often describes Himself in the Gospels. And that's because the coming of the Son of Man signals the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to establish an everlasting kingdom through the work of Christ. The Son of Man riding on the clouds is a reference to His deity. And Jesus often uses that image in the Gospels to describe how He will come again. To judge the living and the dead. And that tells you that Jesus' kingdom work 
is inaugurated in his first coming and consummated in his second coming. And what Daniel sees is one great redemptive work that gets spread out between two comings. Jesus says in John 5.27 that the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. When the chief priests questioned Jesus about his identity in Matthew 26 verses 63 to 64, this is what transpired. The high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. Oh, he understood exactly who he was claiming to be. See, the entire book of Daniel looks forward to this future when God will send his Messiah, his Christ, the Lord Jesus who is truly human and truly divine to save his people from their sins, to rescue them from spiritual exile, to inaugurate his kingdom and usher in a reign of everlasting righteousness. Daniel sees the coronation of the Son of Man in heaven. And this is what he sees. Look at verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. That's worship language. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You know, this scene ought to remind us of Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 1.13 tells us that this is about Jesus, the Son of God. Now, when we look at a parallel vision, In Revelation chapter 5, John sees that Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. But when he turns and looks at the conqueror, he sees not a lion, but a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. You see, this is how the Son of Man conquers. This is how Christ inaugurates his kingdom. By laying down his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for the sins of his people. The divine son of God added to himself a human nature, lived a perfectly obedient life. A life that the first human, Adam, should have lived. And he failed to live. Jesus lived a righteous life on our behalf. And then he died on the cross for the sins of his people. He paid the penalty and he purchased the forgiveness of sin for anyone who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin and death. And he ascended into heaven as the head of a new humanity. He inaugurated the new creation. You see, because of what Jesus did, God has highly exalted him. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into the heavens? On a cloud, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, Jesus now reigns from heaven. And we who have been given new life in him by faith are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 2.6. And he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The Son of Man, the Lord of glory, comes on the clouds. He is crowned with glory. He is given an everlasting kingdom so that people from every nation and language should worship him. Friends, all of this is described to us in this way, in apocalyptic vision, so that we would be in awe of God and of Christ. What Matthew is telling us in a sentence, Daniel is showing us in IMAX. Visual imagery has a, has a way of stirring your emotions in that way. Daniel saw this awe-inspiring vision of the conquering son of man and his kingdom. And that emboldened him. Emboldened him to stand firm in his faith. Even in his 80s. To stand firm before tyrants like Belshazzar. And unashamed in his allegiance to the Lord. Even during Darius' reign. It's a glorious vision. It's meant to turn our eyes to the true king, to a higher throne. 
when earthly beasts rage and gnash their teeth against you, that's where we ought to look. That's what visions do. You know, if you have ever watched the movie Aquaman, if you watch that movie, raise your hand. Okay, good, I won't lose you. If you watch the movie Aquaman, there's a scene in that movie where the director wants us to know that Arthur Curry, the Aquaman, is the true king of Atlantis. Now, you know, the movie could have played out like this. Arthur Curry shows up and he says, that's me, I'm the true heir to the throne. King Atlan's daughter is my mom. That settles it. No one wants to go watch that. No, instead, how does the director portray that? Arthur Curry goes on a quest. He dives down into the depths of the sea. He faces off a sea monster. He takes the royal trident from his dead father's hands. He emerges from the depths of the sea cave. It comes out of the, the waterfall and he's in his royal Atlantean garb and he slams the trident down and we hear a voice saying, the one true king and the crowd in the theater goes wild. But that's just fiction. This is truth. You see, these apocalyptic visions are meant to stir our hearts to see how glorious the Son of Man is. So that as you imagine him going up to the throne as a conquering king, you want to sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. This is the ground for our hope. Now we have the advantage of seeing these things in hindsight. Christ has come, he's conquered. And Daniel has some years to, to think about this, doesn't he? This is in the past. He has some years to think about this before encountering a drunk Belshazzar or being thrown into the lion's den. But when he saw this vision, he was overwhelmed. It was all too much to take in. We can relate to Daniel here, can't we? Daniel needed to ponder over these truths with, with hope, just like we do. Which brings us to our third and final point. We hear about the hope and triumph of the saints of the Son of Man. Look at me at verses 15 to 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. This is what he's feeling as, he, as he's seeing things unfold. And so he does this. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there. He approaches a, a heavenly being, perhaps an angel. And asked him the truth concerning all this. Daniel wants to know the certainty of all these things. I, I, I just want to make sure that I'm getting all of this right. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the, of the things. Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever. And ever. Don't you think it's odd that it says that? Isn't one forever enough? You know, this is the writer's way of saying, this will surely come to pass. I love the way the NIV puts it. They will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. You know, this is a sure hope you can hold on to. The saints, the people of God, the people that the Son of Man represents, they will possess the kingdom. You remember how I said you can't separate kings from kingdoms? You can't separate Christ from his people. You know, this promise is pointing forward to the time when Christ will return, when the dead in Christ shall rise with new resurrection bodies, when the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed and Jesus will usher in a new earth. Friends, the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ has already begun. We have already experienced the powers of the age to come in our new births. One day we will receive new bodies. Jesus is already reigning now and his saints are seated with him in the heavenly places already by faith. But we haven't yet possessed the kingdom in glory. Right now our position, our seating with him, our reign with him, it's hidden isn't it? Like Colossians 3.3 says, our lives are hidden with Him. The kingdom of heaven is small, like a mustard seed. But one day, 
Our reign with him will be public. We will possess the kingdom in glory. This is a promise to hold on to, to look forward to when we will inherit the heavenly new earth. Beloved, a time is coming when the Lord will say to us, when he will say to us, his saints, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, brothers and sisters, let that be your comfort during hard days. But Daniel has more questions. You know, that last beast was terrifying. Look at verses 19 to 22. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns, remember, lots of power that were on its head. And the other horn that came up, and before which, before which three of them fell, the horn that had, had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. And I think this is specifically what worried Daniel. Verse 21. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. <clears throat> Beloved, there are three things you should note here. Firstly, this horn from this last kingdom makes war against the saints and prevails. In other words, he persecutes the saints and he succeeds in his diabolical schemes. This is a realistic future that is being shown to Daniel and the people of Israel. God is saying to them, you may be out of exile in a few years, but the Lord's people will always be persecuted. Expect suffering. This government may go, another may come, but expect suffering. Do not be surprised when it comes. This will happen until God gives his judgment. Secondly, secondly, notice that notice what happens once judgment is given. The saints possess the kingdom. Keep that order in mind. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? 23 to 26, first there's Jesus' resurrection, Christ the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That's those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive at his coming. All who belong to him will be given new resurrection bodies. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. That's the judgment. The end of every human government. That's the judgment given for his saints. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When the dead in Christ are raised and are given new resurrection bodies, death will be no more. And remember, why do we need to have new resurrection bodies? Because flesh and blood cannot, flesh and blood of this age cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't possess the kingdom. See, the resurrection of believers must happen for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thirdly, notice that in verse 7 and here in verse 19 and in verse 23, three times it is mentioned. Three times it is mentioned that the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom is what? It's different. Did you notice that? You keep saying that. Again and again, it's different, it's different, it's different. Well, let's see what the heavenly interpreter says. Look at verse 23 to 25. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Now, we have already seen how this refers to a time beyond Daniel's time, and it represents Rome. And yet, why is this beast so different? We know in hindsight that even Rome's wide dominion passed away. So, so what is this difference that we're supposed to grasp? Verse 24, As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another king, another king shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. This is that little horn that Daniel saw. 
But what's happening within this government? There's internal fracturing. You know, this should remind you of chapter 2. Iron doesn't mix with clay. It's brittle. Beloved, worldliness and wickedness can never produce true unity. You know, it may produce fake unity to keep up appearances for the sake of controlling people, but never true unity. Only the gospel can do that. Verse 25, He, this little horn, this ruler, shall speak words against the Most High, against God. So imagine the arrogance, the contempt that this man has. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This refers to, to hostility and persecution. So he's going to do his best to make your life so hard and miserable till you give up. That'll be his strategy. And not only that, he shall think to change the times and the law. Now, remember that it is only God who changes times and seasons. That's Daniel 2.21. This man will want to change the law, meaning the law of God. This man will try to play God. And that means he will tell you when to worship and under what circumstances you can worship. Then he will tell you how to worship and eventually he will tell you who to worship. And it'll probably be himself. Remember how idolatry is portrayed in the book of Daniel. It's when humans set themselves up as God. And friends, what we are being shown here is that this will be a time of dreadful tribulation for the saints. But praise God, it won't be for long. It won't be for long. Look at the text. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Notice how even during this period of intense pers persecution or tribulation, we are to be assured of God's sovereign reign over the chaos. They shall be what? Given into his hand. By whom? By God who is in perfect control. Now that phrase, time, times, and half a time, properly refers to three and a half years. Three and a half years. But remember how numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. They're symbolic. So if seven years would be a time of fullness and completeness, three and a half, half of seven, I'm bad at math, but even I know that. Three and a half, half of seven is what? Well, it's less than complete. It's limited. It's, relatively, it's a relatively brief time of tribulation. You know, Jesus speaks about this time in Matthew 24, 21 to 22. Jesus says, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world, until now no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the saints, those days will be what? Cut short. Cut short by what? Well, look at Daniel 7 verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment. You see what stops it? God himself. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Friends, the judgment of this little horn, this proud ruler from the fourth kingdom takes place when? at the end, when the saints will possess the kingdom. You see, this is the difference that we're supposed to see. The fourth kingdom points to Rome, but it's not limited to Rome. It's Rome and every other kingdom that follows after it. Every other kingdom or government that embodies the spirit that was represented in the godless Roman Empire. And that means that we're living under the rule of the fourth kingdom. In every generation, there are waves of suffering, but an intense one is coming. An intense one is coming. No matter which country we are living in or what sort of government we are under, it is beastly in God's sight, and it's reflective of the last days, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So in Revelation 13, that passage that was read to us this morning, John saw himself and Christians in his day, living under the dominion of that fourth beast, didn't he? It was a combination of all these beasts. The fourth beast, uh, the fourth beast of the kingdom is Rome and beyond. 
And that means that this little horn in this vision refers to an end time figure. A sort of last leader of the earth's final kingdom. When evil and re rebellion will reach its peak. This is an end time figure which the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist. Or the man of lawlessness. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look at that passage very quickly. You know, Paul here is telling us about the day when Christ will return. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 3 to 4. It's the day of Christ's return. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring it to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Friends, what does this mean for us as believers? Well, it means the same thing that it meant for Israel in exile. We must prepare ourselves for suffering for the days ahead. Let us not be naive about the future. Let us not be ignorant about Satan's schemes. Daniel was greatly troubled by what he saw, but he mulled over it in his heart. Look at verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You know, Christians of old understood this vision very well. That many kingdoms and rulers like the fourth beast, would persecute God's people. You know, in the New Testament times, <clears throat> Rome was viewed as the beast. The emperor Nero was seen as the Antichrist. He was seen as evil personified because of all that he was doing. During the Reformation, the papacy was viewed as the fourth beast. The Pope was viewed as the Antichrist. And yet time moves on, but that same pattern remains, doesn't it? You know, 2 Thessalonians 2 says that the lawless one will be revealed with the activity of Satan. With many false signs and wonders. John tells us about this in 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. The spirit of the Antichrist comes in every age. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. But notice the one truth that is meant to grip our hearts in all of this. He will be destroyed. And the saints will possess an everlasting kingdom. Satan and his minions will be thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, God will wipe away every tear of every saint. The wicked will be judged. The saints will receive their inheritance. We will triumph. And all of this is assured because of the conquering Son of Man. Our destiny is tied to His. Those who belong to Him will share in His dominion. Beloved, because He has triumphed, we too will triumph. Because of our Savior, we have this immovable hope and we can rest assured that it is well with our souls. Friends, if you're not a Christian, and I want to call you this morning to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins, your indifference towards God and His Word, and put your trust in the conquering Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who put their trust in Him will never be put to shame. Your sins will be forgiven, and He will welcome you into His everlasting kingdom with His love. But if you reject Him, you will be condemned on the last day. Brothers and sisters, in a world filled with pain and uncertainty, you know, movies and sci-fi novels can often provide an entertaining distraction. But scripture provides us with something far better. Instead of the imaginations of men, we have been given the sure word of prophecy in historical narrative, in poetry, in letters, in apocalyptic writing. 
Beloved, God has given us a sure hope and a promise of triumph in his son. Let's keep that matter in our hearts like Daniel did. Let us speak to our fears. Let this blessed assurance control everything we do. That Christ has conquered and the saints shall possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in the conquering Son of Man. And we pray, Lord, that you would hold fast to us as we strive to be faithful in the midst of a world that is hostile to him. Teach us not to put our hope in earthly rulers, nor look to the kingdoms of this world for validation. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, for the hard days ahead, knowing that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Give us grace for today that we may love one another and boldly proclaim your truth and abound in hope. In Christ's name we pray.